You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Claudia, for those who haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell the listeners why we're talking today. My name is Claudia Cometa. I am a pharmacist by trade. And although I don't work in traditional pharmacy setting now, I still maintain my multiple state licenses. And I graduated back in 03. So worked for over a decade and a half ish, um, mostly in clinical pharmacy. So mostly in ambulatory care, I worked alongside physicians and outpatient clinics, I also managed some anticoagulation clinics. So I um, had that was most of my experience. And I sort of switched courses after my father was diagnosed with lymphoma in 2016 and became his advocate. Nobody else in my family was really medically trained to do it. And so I took on that role um, happily, but also found out a lot of things about the medical system that I think I was either blinded to or didn't open my eyes to or didn't understand, realized how deeply broken it is and decided that I am better utilized in this world to function as an advocate for others as I advocated for him. So um, yeah, I'm here to kind of just explain my experience, hopefully inspire others to think a little bit outside of the box as far as transferable skills as we are pharmacists and have many of those. And uh, it doesn't have to look like somebody else's journeys. What was the main thing lacking in your care for your dad? So what I saw along his journey was, you know, it would almost look like neglect, although I actually trust in my husband's a physician. So I trust in the caliber of person who chooses to go into medical school. And I believe that as a whole, they're going into it for the right reason. They're intelligent, very capable, hardworking, strong ethic type of people. But the system itself is not supporting them to be able to be the providers that they can and should be. And so there is there's a lot of, you know, shortcuts. Um, I saw him go into the pulmonologist's office. And I saw, you know, the fellow evaluate him say, you know, report on the on the default template of the soap note that all was well, and his lungs looked clear when he really didn't actually listen to his lungs. And then I saw the attending come in and sign off on what the fellow did. And then I saw him go in to um, get a chest tube two days later. And so these things just continue to go on and on and on as I'm watching and paying attention. And I'm watching a inaccurate documentation of his weight being put down as 300 pounds when he was actually on a good day, 170. And, you know, when you're in the middle of chemo and that's weight-based, that's a problem. And so um, just error after error, even with my oversight, even with my extreme oversight. So it was shocking to me, honestly, because I always, you know, I think we as healthcare professionals pride ourselves on being detail oriented. And although we also realize that we're humans, we, we do the best we can to pay attention to all the details. And I think even as pharmacists, you know, we take the type A up even a notch further. And, and so it was shocking to me how much was was going wrong. That almost sounds like the game like telephone. I mean, so you're saying that the first guy went in with the soap notes. That's that's the acronym for for subjective, objective, something or other, right? Yeah, assessment plan. He didn't even do those. And then the next guy come in and, and thought he did them and didn't do them. Yeah, what happens with the documentation and electronic medical record in an outpatient setting? Well, inpatient too, but in an outpatient setting is the 
tech gurus on the other end of of creating these amazing um, electronic medical record systems um, produce them so that they can be efficient. Part of their efficiency is an auto population of what you are typically saying. So, okay, you know, lungs are clear to auscultation and, you know, yada, 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 and that will auto populate. You have to be the person to go in and say, that's not the case with this patient. Um, And so it lends itself to problems because of the auto population of what is normally being stated in that specific scenario. It's kind of like when you put your name in something and it pulls up your maybe past computer stuff and it populates everything. But that's a problem. And I imagine that's the upper echelon coming down and saying, hurry up, let's get this going. We're going to auto populate this. But they don't go through every question like they should, right? They assume that if A is here, that all the rest are going to follow. And that's not the case in the real world. Right, right. And it's really easy to go through your chart and just, okay, okay, let me just put a few notes. All of this auto populates and you don't go back and actually fix the things from that auto population that do not apply to this patient. Well, then you're the fellow, the attending pulmonologist comes in after you, assuming you did what you said on that auto populated chart. They're not assuming that it's all auto populated. They think you went through and looked at it. Correct. Yeah. So they assume that that's accurate. And I mean, ultimately, you're a pulmonologist, you know, like if you don't listen to lungs, that's probably a problem. Yeah, right. (laughs) You have a very niche job. So, uh, you know, I had a very long conversation with the attending. Uh, You know, it it went a little bit ugly. That's okay when it's your family. Well, it's okay a lot of times, but it's okay when it's your family for sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, and it was a it was a difficult year. But, you know, what I would say is I needed to see all of that to see really what was going on. Because, you know, I would I would sit and I would manage my anticoagulants and I would feel like I'm doing a good job. And, you know, hooray for for clinical pharmacists. And I, and I believe that we do. A, a, you know, I think pharmacists in general do really fantastic work. Um, you know, we're just one part of a system that is overall extremely broken. And I just felt that my um, my skill set, my knowledge, my passion um, and my my hope to help others through that very difficult situation as I'm looking around the ICU bay, you know, I'm looking at room to room to room and I'm thinking, who's helping this person and who's watching out for this person's chart and who's looking at this person's labs and who's questioning these things for these patients? Nobody's there. So um, I just decided to, to change courses. I still maintain my pharmacy licenses from the states that I've par- practiced practiced in. And so um, it's not a, a renunciation of pharmacy, but more a, a, just an expansion of what we're able to do. If you were a pharmacist up there, you probably wouldn't have had the chance to see the stuff in your dad's notes because a pharmacist, I take it, maybe don't look that deeply. And if you weren't a pharmacist or in the medical profession, you may not have had enough skills to know that something was being passed over. You might not know the guy was doing autofill or something like that. Is that right? So 100%. Both of those would have been missed, even as a pharmacist and even as a family member. Is that right? 100%. Yeah. If I was you know, in the pharmacy looking just on paper, I might have caught the 300 pound error only because I know he's not 300 pounds. Right. But if I was a pharmacist not knowing the person personally, I would have no idea that that, you know, that that was an error unless I, you know, was able to look back and see a pattern of like, okay, I'm pretty sure you didn't gain 130 pounds in a week. So that's probably an error. But other than that, you know, no, I wouldn't have been in the office to know that that documentation and that auto populated note was inaccurate. There would have been no way for me to know that. And as a non-medical professional, there would have been no way for me to know any of that. I would have had no way to know really anything that I caught, I wouldn't have known what questions to ask, what to look for, to even look at the online portal to know that that a um, error was made in his weight. So no, I wouldn't have known any of that. Well, you might have had a 
premonition or, or an inkling maybe as a family member, but probably not. But you might have picked up like if someone had a stained shirt that wasn't changed in a day or two, but you're not going to pick up that other stuff. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. And it's so much that it's so overwhelming for me as a healthcare professional to see it. I can only imagine how overwhelming it is for the person who's sick, who can't really even process, you know, more than five words during an appointment because they aren't feeling well. And then they're also supposed to somehow be so proactive in their care that they have to now know everything to be able to catch errors. I mean, the assumption is... I am going to the authority who is has systems in place to prevent these errors and knows enough to help me. I don't I shouldn't have to do all of this. You know, it's like if I'm buying from Amazon, I shouldn't have to worry about whether my two day prime, you know, you that's your job as the company. You know, it's your job as the healthcare professional, as the physician to provide me this level of care in a safe way. And so I, you know, so it's it's a lot. It's a lot. And people don't realize Um how how really broken it is. If you don't know, you don't know. But I think a lot of people may not have all the skills that you would have, but they'd have some of them just to know that something doesn't seem right. They maybe even can't put words to it. Yeah. When you say it's a systems problem, whenever I think of the system, I always think of the man. I don't even know who the man is, but I always think of the man, you know, like the upper echelon, like managers and the owners of the hospital and things like that. Now, I suppose someone else could argue, they could say, no, the system is just when a lot of people get together and there's no real manager, but the system breaks down, kind of like the telephone game I was mentioning. In your mind, though, when you talk about the system breaking down, is there any place, and not that we're here just to throw blame around, we're here because you're a solutions person, but where does this start breaking down in your mind? So many places. I would argue that there are few places that it's not broken broken down. Um, you know, where did it begin is hard to say. It's kind of like chicken and egg, but I'll say that it begins as early in the training of medical professionals as the schooling. You know, I think mm. about the culture in medical school. I mean, I I basically, you know, my husband and I have been together for ever since high school. So I we've been through both all of it. So I've been through the medical schooling. I know what type of physician is he? He's an anesthesiologist now. So oh, anesthesiologist. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, but so I, you know, I, I went through the the whole process with him. And I saw the types of, you know, the culture that is promoted in medicine. And it's very similar in parallel, honestly, to the to the schooling I had in pharmacy school. So there is, um, you know, an underlying assumption, um, you know, in this current time that we're in that medications are there to solve all problems. And um, it is very medication- heavy. Uh, so in pharmacy school, we used to role play. And I've talked about this on my podcast. We, we used to role play, you know, if somebody comes in and wants to take a supplement, here's how you're going to tell them not to. Here's how you're going to tell them that the FDA doesn't regulate that and this isn't good for you. But here, this other drug is really great for you. So um, how about you ask your doctor for this instead? So, you know, we role play these things and there's this indoctrination of the way that we should think as pharmacists. In a very similar and paralleled way in medical school, you know, there's just there's this indoctrination of the way that you should think as a doctor and you, you diagnose X condition and he here are the medications that you would prescribe for X condition. And again, you know, you don't supplements are not, you know, this is all quackery. You're never going to recommend acupuncture, or chiropractor, or these things are all there's no science to back that up, you know, so you're indoctrinated into thinking in a very specific way, you're molded mm. into this system. Okay, so as you, you know, you come into into the field, 
you know, I, I just want to help somebody. I had this amazing experience as a kid, you know, where my mom was diagnosed with something scary. And I just want to be that person to help others. You know, they come in with amazing stories of why they want to help others. And then this molding starts to happen through school. And then you go into residency and there's just this, you know, you know, work until you can't, you know, breathe or see or anything anymore. Like, you know, don't, you know, you don't get to eat lunch. You don't get to go to the bathroom. And so, you know, and, and that, that makes you tough, you know, that makes you strong. And um, so there's this, this indoctrination of mindset around what, you know, a healthcare professional is, what a physician is, a physician just pushes through, you know, um, and the system isn't here to support you, you know, you're here to support your patients at all costs at the cost of your own self care, right? So you don't I mean, no, I, I didn't usually go to the bathroom when I worked, I worked in retail a little bit and um, bathroom was a luxury. So, um, so, you know, there's just this continued verbiage and culture that surrounds medicine. And ultimately, we are not meant to sustain a life of not going to the bathroom and not hydrating ourselves and not yeah. taking care of ourselves and then being able to somehow pour into our patients. We can't do it. It's just not even it, it's not human to do that. Yeah. So eventually we break down as people. The system continues to support this mm. this culture that isn't sustainable and everything breaks down. And then, of course, outside of just the culture of that, then there is the whole problem with, you know, the payer system and insurances, you know, making decisions, insurances, fueling and informing the decisions that go into the costs of things, you know, there's big pharma, you know, there's yeah. just a lot of things. And I'm not against all of that. I think there, there could be roles for those things. Obviously, there are life saving medications. So I'm not saying that we should renounce all medications. Um, but there are so many pieces of this that that have problems. And so the entire system. I think the enlightening part, well, to me, and I think what we all have to understand is even if like schools changed, let's say schools changed overnight and didn't force us as hard, or let's say the upper ranks didn't push as hard, our comrades still may push us as hard just because that's the culture. And that could last for another you know, 50 years until some of that dies out. We can find fault in our own profession. We're all pushing each other, probably. 100%. Well, we've all been indoctrinated, right? And as it gets a little bit, you know, even in medicine, it's like it gets a little bit easier for the residents because there's new rules about how many hours you can work, you know, well, then the old school docs are like, well, in my day, you know, in my day, you're sissies then. Yeah. I mean, we, we didn't even, you know, we walked 10 miles in the snow before we even got to work at 5am or what, you know, whatever. And we worked, you know, we worked 36 hour shifts, you guys, get off in 24 yeah. hours. That's insane. You know, and so the, so it trickles. So you're right, it, it will take many generations to start to shift. And it, it is shifting because there are much, much more tolerable rules right now for medical residents than there were when my husband was a resident. And when he when his dad was a doctor, I mean, you just would sleep in the hospital for a week. Like, so it, it has gotten better, but it will take many generations to, to wash that out. When you get that upper level saying, not these words, but you know, you guys are sissies, you're not doing what we did. It almost seems it goes underground then where people are like, well, we'll do this private hazing like they do in the fraternities and stuff, you know, because we're not going to be called sissies by those guys. I don't know how you would force extra work on yourself. But when your parent and grandparents are saying that stuff to you, you got to say, well, it's still tough because we do this, you know, so you got to find something to make it sound like you're not taking care of yourself, I guess, you know, right, you can be as miserable as they were. We'll show yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is this is a much larger societal problem. I mean, what is, you know, glamorized and encouraged and yeah. acknowledged and validated is 
working yourself to death. There's, you know, if you have openings on your schedule and you might be taking, you know, 15 minutes to meditate or to take care of yourself, what, like, what are you doing? Are you even, you know, a a productive member of society? And we, so this is a much larger societal issue, but, but it's even more exaggerated in, in the medical field. You're with your dad, your dad, it's getting sicker. When did you then make the move to this? Was it a look back at what your dad went through or was it during that situation that you said, I'm going to try to broaden this out and make a bigger impact on this? Good question. We moved back to Florida from Washington State in 2016 and I didn't immediately seek a job when we first moved. And it was very shortly thereafter that my father got diagnosed. And so I kind of, you know, we just made some budgetary changes. And um, I kind of just took that on as my full time job for a little bit. And then I just realized, I was driving back and forth. So they my parents lived in Orlando, which is two hours south of where I live. And so I would drive back and forth just constantly um, trying to be at appointments and etc. And, um, you know, one day it was probably um, three quarters of the way in through that year, it was pouring. I just remembered it was pouring down rain. And all of a sudden, it was like just this, I have to do this for somebody else. I know, like, mm-hmm. I knew already at that point, that the likelihood that my father would make that make it through was very low. And I was like, okay, well, when this, you know, when this chapter is over, which I know, I'm gonna go through some, gr- you know, pretty deep grieving process over it, what am I going to do with his legacy? What am I going to do with the knowledge that I have gained? What can I how can I serve others in the way that I served him. And so it was like, I have to do this for others. I don't know what that looks like. I didn't even know to call it a patient advocate. I don't think at really any point in time I labeled it as I was being his patient advocate. Um, I just was helping him on his journey. And so I was like, I just know that this is what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what that looks like. I just know that that's what feels right to me. And so, uh, you know, it, it was a I had moved forward very imperfectly because at no point in my pharmacy training was I taught how to start a business or, I mean, that is shifting a little bit. You know, there's there's pieces of, of pharmacy school that kind of at least expose you to that. But I had zero exposure, zero knowledge of how to start a business, um, especially when it wasn't technically pharmacy. I mean, I'm not really functioning as a pharmacist. So, um you know, I just was like, I don't, I don't really know how to do any of the back end stuff, but I know what I'm doing as far as the trenches. And so I'm just going to ask my sister to help me build a website who's in tech. You know, I just, I was just being resourceful and I moved forward very imperfectly. When you moved to Florida, you were two hours away from your dad. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose that area instead of not right up close to him? Because how many times a week were you going back to see him or going down to see him? We were called back to Florida. We actually were fine in Washington State. We were, uh, but uh, my husband trained here in Gainesville, and the hospital here called him back. They were expanding, and they we got the call, and we were like, "All right, well, this is this must be the sign that we got to go back." Yeah. So at that time, you're saying, "Well, being two hours away is better than two days of flying away, almost." For sure, 100. percent Yeah, I was not working during that time, which was fantastically timed um, and very you know divine intervention type of thing. And I also acknowledge and validate that I was blessed that my husband had a had a a job that would able that would be oh, able to sure. support that. I realize, and you know, that not everybody has that yeah. that flexibility in their financial space. Did you have enough access with your dad legally? Were you like his legal medical power of attorney and all that stuff? Were you all that already or not? Yeah. So my mom was, but she was always there with me. So we kind of left it for her to to sort of be the decision maker, and then I just kind of took over. So I was at the appointments more than she was, and and at, by you know by about a month in, everybody pretty much had my picture. Pe- 
plastered everywhere. They knew that they were to call me. I mean, it was like not no question that I was the um, the the force running the show. And um, a lot of times they didn't necessarily like that. But, you know, (laughs) was that hard for you ever to know that you had to be the bulldog sometimes? Did you always take pride in it? Did it ever affect you like that you were pulled between saying, I've got to say this and do what's right for my dad and these people might not like that? And what was your emotions with that? Did that hurt you? Did it empower you? Yeah. So my mom's side is Italian and that's kind of, that's kind of in us. Um, so that part was not difficult for me. However, if that's not, you know, if that's not a personality type, somebody sort of claims that can be very difficult because it really is that the, that the loudest person wins. It's unfortunate, but the reality is, is the system is so overburdened and overloaded that, you kind of have to speak up. And um, so, you know, I started out pretty nice. I'll, I'll always start out with a very amicable relationship. I like to have a good relationship yeah. with my medical team. But I also realize that there are times when things have to get a little bit more aggressive. And and it, many times it did. I ended up firing both hospital systems in Orlando and, and moved him up to Gainesville. And if I, you know... It, it doesn't really matter if I had done that earlier, but, you know, I, I wish I would have been able to talk him into that earlier, but he was wanting to stay in, in the area and, and Orlando just wasn't serving him. But um, but you have to be willing to, as a, as a person advocating for yourself and as a person advocating for a loved one, you have to be willing to part ways with a medical team that isn't serving you and a, and a facility that isn't serving you. And I think that's hard for people because they feel a sense of, you know, loyalty. This person knows my chart, this person, you know, and it's hard to reestablish with somebody and it just seems overwhelming. Um, but you know, you really have to get into a mindset that this is like any other service. It's any other anything else that you're purchasing as a consumer, you're purchasing a service. And if it, the service is not serving you, you you have to be in the mindset to be able to switch. Is that like changing a legal team where you have to make a big thing? Or when you say you fired them, is there anything official for that when someone's in the system or you just say, instead of going to here next week, we're not going to go there, we're going to go up to Gainesville. Is it official or do you just go? I think it's respectful to let the the provider know that you're leaving. You Would you have to? No, you could just not show. Um, I don't I don't think that it's in anybody's best interest to have um, just a kind of a... F- That's what all my former girlfriends did to me. <laughs> There was no chart though. Just, no. just just memory. Just just your heart and your head. Hopefully not. I don't know. It hasn't come out yet, but God only knows. You could just bail. You could just go MIA. But you know, just like when you, you know, if you leave a hospital, it's it's never a good thing to have in your chart that you just bailed and didn't show up to an appointment or gotcha. you know, um you want to have some documentation that, you know, that I'm just letting you know this isn't working out. I've chosen to move providers. Um the reality is is a lot of people treat it just like you said, they treat it like it's going to be a breakup, it's going to be this big thing, and there's going to be this animosity. And the reality is, is the providers, it's not that they don't care, they don't have the time to be putting any energy into worrying about why you moved on. I mean, maybe maybe a newer practitioner who doesn't have a big, you know, patient panel might spend a little bit of time thinking about it, but it's not, you don't need to worry about that. You just, you respectfully, we're leaving, we're moving to a different hospital system, I'm moving to a different provider. And I'm just letting you know, please document that on my chart. So it's not like she just fell off. I mean, she had this appointment. And you know, that's just and that that doesn't look good for anybody it doesn't look good to the insurance side, it just doesn't look good. So yeah, but it, it's not a big thing. It's not and I think that's part of the and I'm glad that you brought that up. Because I do think that people think it has to be this big scene. And it it's not a scene at all. It's just, you know, I, I'm letting you know that this isn't this relationship isn't working out. And it ultimately is a relationship. And just like any other relationship, if it's not working out, you just move on. I grew up kind of more as a people pleaser. And I still kind of have that 
in me, believe it or not. Everybody says, how can that asshole be a people pleaser? Just (laughs) those two just don't line up for me. But there's a difference in telling somebody this relationship's not working out versus we've chosen to take a different road with this. Because on the first one, it's more like, oh, the relationship didn't work out. What happened? And the second one, if you say, and you said it just a, a minute ago, like we've decided to go with a different system or something like that. One is almost a little bit more personable, like the relationship broke down and one's just like we're moving. Do you think it's important to actually give that of saying the relationship didn't work out? Or can you just say, no, we're just moving and let them think that it's because you've decided to move closer to family or this and that. Do you think it's good to like express as much as you feel comfortable with? I would never want them to think that they're, that everything was going well and the only reason that we're moving is because we're moving away. They need to know that there was somebody who was dissatisfied. Now, what they want to do with that, I will say close to 100% of the time, nothing will happen with that. It will just get documented. The physician, you know, most likely you will send this note. You could send the note via a portal to the actual physician, which will be seen by the nurse. But the times that a physician will actually read that and somehow process it and worry about it is probably zero. So it's not... It's not. It's more just for documentation that the clinic knows like, oh, okay, what happened to that person? Oh, yeah. Okay. They went somewhere else. Done. Like there will be close to zero hard feelings. They won't care. You know, it's not that they don't care because they're not caring people. It's there's a a million other patients. You know, they're they're so overloaded that if you've decided to go get care somewhere else, there's not going to be an exit interview. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And that's an unfortunate thing because that would actually be nice if somebody said, hey, this person decided to leave. Let's go to this department and see if we can find out what went wrong because then maybe we can improve. I mean, that would be like some kind of utopia compared to what's happening now. But I wouldn't lie to make it seem prettier or less um, harsh. I would just say, you know, yeah, I I haven't been happy. Honestly, I haven't been happy with the care there. I've decided to move my care and establish my care elsewhere. It's not a relationship that I think is serving either of us. So I'm moving on. And whoever's taking the message will say, okay, thanks for letting us know. (laughs) That will be the end of that. Yeah, they don't care. They don't care. I mean, I see it as a, you know, independent pharmacy when I'm dealing directly with the people, that's one thing. And I've known their family for years and stuff, but the people don't care. They just want to chart it correctly and move on. Right, right. And you you want the chart to be accurate because you'll you'll be shocked at how many inaccuracies, you know, will be in there about what you've said or didn't say. And you'll be like, what? I I don't, you know, and so you, you want to have that documented correctly about why you left. You're a couple hours away from your dad. You're doing more and more of this. So when do you make your first move to say, I could do this for somebody else? I know you you said you were kind of thinking how this might impact others. When did that thought get stronger? So he he passed away April 15th of that year. And I honestly, you know, beginning of April started to make small plans. You know, I just started to say, okay, well, what, you know, what name would feel good to me? Um, you know, I, I just took very, very small baby steps because I knew that I was going to need some space to grieve. But I also felt as, you know, the default type A that I am, that I wanted to get the ball rolling, even though it was rolling so slow, but I wanted it to at least start going in the right direction. So, you know, what name would I like? And what would I like my you know, like colors to represent to somebody? You know, I it, I was really into sort of just this, this peace, the sense of peace around the whole process and the journey, because I really had very little peace in it. And so did my dad. So, um, so I just, you know, small, small changes, small, small decision making, you you know, like, okay, I'm gonna, okay, now I'll look for the URL to buy. And okay, now I'll, you know, small steps. And then after he died, I took off, you know, it's several weeks to just kind of like breathe through that. And then 
once I kind of felt ready to to take on some clients, I, you know, made sure that my website was live and that I had a, a contract in place, you know, that it would, that I legally needed. And, um, you know, I, I got onto a nationwide database where people, if they were to search, you know, um, health advocate or patient advocate, or they even knew to, to use those words, um, they would come across a database and I, um, was, was vetted and put on that. And, um, so pretty quickly I was, I was able to help another family in a tough situation and, and the, it was so fulfilling to me to be able to do that and to be able to get that family back to a state of wellness and know that, okay, that's awesome. Now, you know, this, this, you know, gentleman's adult son and grandchildren are able to have more years with him, you know, even if I played a minor role in that. And so it, it, it really kind of moved me from this internal, let me just sink into my personal grief and to like, let me do, let me serve the moment in a better way and um, be able to give back. So I bet even things like choosing the colors and the name and all that was almost therapeutic in your grief slash, you know, acceptance process and all that. You're kind of like thinking through things and yeah, very much so. How, mature is the patient advocate industry? Is that newish? And how is the healthcare industry, are they accepting of that person in the, in the medical team? Yeah, the, it's still very much in its infancy. And, um, you know, it kind of trickled. There's there's some patient advocates who, you know, say they've been sort of doing advocacy since, you know, maybe... 2009, you know, 2010. Um, but it it hasn't really become like it just recently became a board certification, you know, which I, I honestly I like haven't even done it because I have a little bit of a, a sense of um, exhaustion over how many letters we need to have after our name to to say that we are qualified to do something. So I have not done that just because it's it's not important to me. I know the work that I do, but it, it, there is a certification board and that's very recent last couple years. Um, yes. A, a state board? You can be board certified patient advocate. It's not a it's not a state. It's not a licensure like a state pharmacist licensure. It's more just a certi- certificate yeah, kind of yeah, a- kind of like a BCPS kind of a thing. So um, so it's, you know, it's becoming more established, it's becoming more accepted, more acknowledged, more validated, um, more credible, but there still is no, so like to take the certification test, you don't have to have any specific degree, you don't really have to show any certain amount of hours of patient care, like you really could just take it. Um, and so a lot of it goes into like ethics of patient care and stuff. So it's not nearly as, you know, niche and specific as a pharmacy exam, but um, but so it, so the door is open to the background of the person that goes into this type of a field. So there are many like administrators who become patient advocates. There are many nurses. I would say nursing is probably one of the bigger fields that end up going into this pharmacy. Very, very small, very um, low percentage of pharmacists in currently in the space. Um, you know, and there's some patients who become patient advocates, you know, that they have had such a complicated, lengthy journey that they just want to get into the space to help in whatever capacity that is. And so you've got just this amazing pool of people who have come into this for very genuine, authentic reasons, usually based on a personal experience. And, um, you know, the the trick now is there's not a lot of awareness, right? Like we're having this conversation, but there's not a whole lot of awareness yet. It's getting it's getting heightened a little bit, but there's not a lot of awareness that I'm even as a patient able to type in the, like, oh, let me search for a patient advocate. You know, there are some hospital 
systems and facilities that employ what's called patient advocates, maybe nurse navigators, but the but the fact is is they are employed by that facility. So there's going to be some bias. There's going to be some protection of the facility and the, of the staff there, and that that's different than a private patient advocate. When does the profession get so big that there's it's already there that there's already patient advocates, but now you're like no, we're the patient patient advocate. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then pretty soon. Let's say someone in your position says, I'm getting good at this and now I'm going to have, you know, 500 of my own patient advocates and so on. Well, ultimately, you know what happens. It turns into a bigger business and then someone like you has to come along and kind of like be better than the person that was like you that now has 500 employees and not doing the same job that you do. So is that like a never ending cycle or where does it stop where we say, no, I'm really your advocate? Where does that stop? Yeah, you know, so the patient advocate and nurse navigators and those types of titles that are within bigger organizations and hospital systems are intended to kind of, you know, be the the point person, you know, like if I can't get a hold of my doctor and I, you know, I'm going through a chemo regimen or something. And so they're kind of the point person, but they are not going to be the person who's going to say, oh, you know, this isn't this isn't going well or, oh, you noticed you noticed an error or, oh, oh you want to leave this system. Let me help you navigate to the next system. I mean, ultimately, their interests are of their employer, which is that system. And so they can help you navigate within that system, but they're most likely not going to um, be the first ones to point out errors in their own system. You know, so there's just going to be some biases that there's no way to help that. Um, there's going to be some conflicts of interest there, although they serve an amazing purpose. So I do not want to downplay that. There are you know, countless people that I've interviewed on my own podcast that are like, if I didn't have that nurse navigator, so they serve an important purpose. But a private patient advocate, like what I do and what others do, is I have no interests other than yours. I have no goals other than the goals that you tell me. And I I, I don't I have no problem speaking up to this facility or that facility or moving you to a different facility because my only interest is yours and I have no bias. I have nobody, I have no boss to speak to. You know, I work for myself. And there's just a love there's a different level when that's the case. And um you know, people really appreciate that. Now, you know, will in the future some national conglomerate, you know, eat up all the, you know, start to employ all the patient advocates and it becomes this big business. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the future of that holds because in anesthesia, you know, these things happen over the years, you know, when there's, there's private, there's, um, there's private practice anesthesia groups and national groups start eating those groups up. And, and and that that can happen. I don't know if that will happen in this, this space. I think we're still far out from that. There's not a whole lot of interest on the big business side in, in us little patient advocates. Will that change? Maybe. Uh, maybe that will change. But there are um, there's so many of us who who like having the flexibility of making those decisions. And that's a lot of what we disliked in the box that we were in, in our, in our jobs. Um, So, you know, like I don't have anybody to report to of what, you know, can, can I say this or can I, you know, proceed in this direction? I just do what's right for the patient. That's ethically still sound and that is in their interest. Yeah. And there, and there's some companies that have pulled that off or I haven't checked lately, but like Consumer reports, you know, they, when you think of them, they always, that's their first thing. Like we're non-biased, we're private, we don't take any of this and that kind of thing. So if a company does that right, it doesn't necessarily have to be small to do that right. It can get bigger as long as their, let's say privacy is a main thing, as long as they put that forefront in their ideals and in their marketing or communication you know, they can probably still maintain that, I suppose. Yeah, 
Yeah. And I, you know, I think that absolutely it could, you know, and there's not always a downside to something getting bigger. You know, if we had, if we had some, a lot of, you know, when I first started this and I started looking at the websites of a, of a bunch of patient advocates just to kind of get an idea of what everybody was doing and where everybody was from and what was going on, a good 60-ish percentage at that time of the websites I clicked on were no longer in existence. So there is there is this side of, okay, you know, um, we're so small, we're still so much in our infancy that a lot of us can't survive if we don't have another source of income in our household. Um, you know, so, so we want to stay small, but we also realize that the financial stability of of this, you know, it's feast or famine, like any other business that you start, you know, like there might, there are months when, when I've got a, a handful of, a, you know, good amount of clients, and there's months when maybe it's a slow month, and I don't have any clients. And so, um, you know, can that person survive? Do we need a, a bigger system to support that? And I, you know, we'll see how it plays out. But, but it, it is difficult to, to have this, you know, be your only source of income. I see a lot of patient advocates who are who would would change the life of so many people, but they cannot financially survive if this is their only source of income. So it's, you know, it's a tough, and that's a true of, you know, any, any industry, you know, it's hard starting out. So I've typically liked to get heating and air conditioner guys or lawn sprinkler guys or something who are not with these bigger companies that in my paranoia think that they're always out to screw me, you know, and then a year later, they're not there anymore because he's got a bad back or something came up with his family or something like that. So that's when you, that's when you start wanting a little bit bigger structure of a business and maybe marketing and, you know, someone for the book works and all that kind of stuff. Then you start wanting that bigger company again. So it's hard for an individual to do that on their own. Certainly. Mm -hmm. What kind of stuff do you do that you might not tell the patient? Well, interesting that you asked that because there's not a whole lot, honestly. There's not a whole lot that I am afraid to tell them. I think it's actually really important that they they know that on my intake form and their their sort of, you know, onboarding form is listing all of their physicians. And that is actually a routine practice that I check on the licensure of their physicians. You know, that's public information. And so it's not like it's difficult to find, but they wouldn't know to look that up. And so I look to see if there's any disciplinary actions on that, um, on that person's license. And um, I would say there hasn't been any that I have found that have been an existing relationship with a physician, but there have been patients who have said, hey, I'm considering this X, Y, this stem cell treatment. And this is the doctor who was saying that. And then when I researched that physician, who they were looking to potentially establish with, I'm like, uh, I don't know about this. Let's, you know, this is what I found. So I have no problem telling them that there's not a whole lot that I mean, I, I'm a pretty open book, I think it's important for them to know exactly what's going on. Because, um, they've already gone through a system that largely is not as transparent as it should be. And, and, they're not hiring me to be another person that they've already seen. They're not hiring me to be a clone of what's already happened. They're hiring me because nothing's gone right and they don't know what else to do. And so I really respect that. And I respect that they can handle the fact that I need to tell them what's going on. Um, now, you know, there's times when I'm, I'm listening for, um, they may think that, you know, oftentimes the assumption is that, this doctor, um, you know, isn't treating me right, or this doctor um, doesn't care about what happens to me. There's a there's a lot because the system is so broken. Um, the the assumption immediately is the provider does not care about me. And I try to explain to them that, you know, here's the situation, I get that that's how it feels. I really do understand that because I was there. Um, but these 
you know, on, in large part, these physicians don't go into medicine because there's some like amazing pot at the end of the rainbow and they could care less about caring for people. I mean, of course, there's always going to be bad apples anywhere. But, you know, and so when I, once I start getting involved and I start talking to those physicians and providers, I realize often that there's just been a disconnect. There's been, you know, what the way that somebody may have approached saying something might have seemed to the the patient or the patient's family member that, you know, we just don't care and we have no options when really I'll get a completely different story just in my approach and the way that I'm able to interact with that provider. And so a lot of times, well, I mean, all the time, communication ends up being a factor, whether it's the primary factor or one of the factors. But at no point, I can't honestly think of any time when I have discovered something or I mean, I am fully transparent. If I find out that your physician has a disciplinary action, you need to know that. You need to, because I, it's going to be hard for me to make the case to you that a different medical team might be in your better interest if you don't know that that's what's that that's what went into my assessment. So there's, there's few, there's not many times, um, you know, what I would say more often than not happens is when I'm listening to what they're telling me, and I actually start digging in, I start to see the disconnects. And I, and I, and I tread lightly on that, you know, I don't want to say, oh, well, no, you have this wrong, because you misunderstood. Um, but rather, you know, let me let me get involved in this and start to to clean up this this um, communication journey and see if we can get a more a little bit more clarity on what they're trying to say what you're trying to say and why that isn't coming together um but but no there there are i can't think of any times when i have discovered something that i haven't actually shared with them you're not coming in probably when they say claudia come on in hey let me introduce you to all my favorite nurses and my doctors here and this is i mean you're coming in because things have gone wrong Crisis mode. <laughs> always, right? Or practically always? Nobody says, mom's got her, you know, stage one cancer. This is going to get bad. So let's line up Claudia and the doctor. I mean, you're coming in last, right? During the crisis. Yes. And that is what I what I hope to shift a little bit. I, it would be great if people had the awareness to say, oh, you know, I've just got this scary diagnosis. I, I anticipate a difficult journey. Let me have somebody alongside holding my hand. Um, that does not, not what happens. And that's not the fault of the patient. It's just people don't know that this even exists. What typically happens is they get to a point where nothing is going right. Who do I go to next? And then they're, then Google starts to like, okay, maybe they put in, you know, um, I need help on my medicals or I don't know what they put in, you know, but then, then some things pop up and maybe they start to learn that, oh, a patient advocate is a thing. And then they start searching for patient advocates. So it, it becomes a search in the midst of a crisis. And um, it would be really amazing if we could move that pendulum a little bit earlier on in the in the process but uh, we're not quite there yet in, in the majority of cases but yeah so I'm usually I'm usually jumping in the fire I mean I'm usually like if you call me there's usually a fire that needs to be put out if you had to put out a marketing piece let's say that someone says Claudia you cannot do crisis you only have to do pre-crisis what kind of marketing would you do and what kind of things would you say? We're not going to call it pre-crisis. We're going to call it <laughs> everything's great, so let's get a patient advocate. What kind of things would you say about that in terms of the value that you would provide way early? 
Yeah. You know, the way that I typically put it is we have learned many things throughout our life, you know, just based on society, what we're taught. We are taught to prepare for a lot of things. We're taught to prepare for interviews. We're taught to prepare for, you know, a lot of things um, in life. And we don't think to prepare for potential health issues. We hope for the best and we we all hope for the best. Yeah. Um, and we try to do the best to, to hopefully nourish our bodies. But the reality is, is there is a good potential that we will experience some type of a health crisis in our lifetime or a family member will and or a family member will. And what are we doing to plan for that? You know, so we go into our financial advisor's office and we say, help me prepare for retirement. Am I prepared for retirement? You know, when they go through all their numbers and they figure out if you're prepared for retirement, if, if you're if you stay on the path that you're on. And so we are projecting already into our, you know, if we're in our 30s or 40s, we're already projecting into our retirement years in our 60s and 70s about our money situation. And at no point outside of purchasing life insurance, and maybe if you're lucky enough to know about long-term care insurance, outside of those two, you're, there's not a whole lot of preparation. You're preparing like, okay, if I die, I'll leave a lump sum of my my, my money to my family. If I need a health, you know, a healthcare facility to help me or an at-home, you know, I'll purchase some long-term care insurance. But that's it. That That's literally it. So um, what about the rest of it? You know, what about your navigation through the system when you have nobody in your family who is medically trained? You know, what about the fact that you don't, you know, you, you don't know how to navigate this system and you don't know if you're getting the best care and you don't know the questions to ask? Um, great that you're insuring yourself, but what are you doing to prepare beyond insuring yourself? And so there have been a very small amount of times when I've had people call, which is fantastic. Hey, I just want to know what you do because I would yeah. really love to know that I could depend on you if something happened. And I'm like, that's amazing. You know, that's, that's cool. amazing. Yeah. What about the section then between, all right, we just got mom back from the doctor and we just found out today our, our wonderful doctor came up and and sat us down and told us this devastating news. There's no problem though. What about that area in there? And this is more of a, from a marketing, you know, business standpoint, we talked about like the, the future. What about like the present, but everything's going well, but we have a diagnosis. I imagine there's steps there that you would be able to help with too. Like you say, finding a doctor and doing this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. What I like to say is- Pre-crisis. Yeah. Pre-crisis, I use the acronym plan. You know, like what what is your what is your provider? Who who's your medical team? And maybe maybe you're so early on in the in the process that you like only have your primary care doctor and you don't need anything else right this minute. But if you, who is your provider list right now and what prospects do you have? Are you living in some rural town where you have no access to an endocrinologist or a cardiologist and and if so, what's what's the closest? Is it two hours away? You know, how far is this person if you needed to see a specialist? And are you able to get to that person? And, and you know, it's good to know that before you need to know that. Um, I have had clients come from very rural towns that have had to seek hospital systems well outside of their area because the care was so poor. And then subsequent to that, they made informed decisions to move because this no longer serves me. This It's great to live out in the country, but um, it may not help you when you need a, a medical, a good medical team. Because the reality is, is you know, most, most medical professionals who are like at the height of their career are not going to work in a rural town. Now, there always is going to be exceptions to that rule. But 
at the height of their career, they're going to work in academic centers. Um, maybe as they start to retire and they're slowing down, they move out, you know, to the country and, and, but at the height of their career and, you know, maybe, and maybe, you know, maybe that's not important to you, but I would argue that if you need good medical care, you know, you're going to get better medical care by going to providers who are at the height of their medical career. But in any case, um, so, you know, P is sort of the providers. What's your provider pool right now? Who is your provider right now? Do you feel good about that provider? Is it a good solid foundation for you? And do you have access to specialists if you need them? Maybe you never need them. Awesome. But let's think through that first. And then L and A are like your liabilities and assets, just as you would talk to a financial advisor. You know, what are your what are your medical liabilities and what are your medical assets? You know, what how how is your situation right now? Do you have the insurance in place? Do you have a polypharmacy concern right now that you didn't know was a concern? You know, what are some of your liabilities and what are some of your assets? You know, do you have um, relatively great positive family history and you have access to all that you need? You know, and to just kind of pairing that out. And then N is just your needs. You know, what would be your needs? Do you, um, you know, have a pretty strong cardiac family history? You don't have that right now and you don't have anywhere to go to get a cardiologist. You know, what might be your needs? And so that that can be talked about well in advance of any problem. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, it does not have to be when waiting till crisis mode. We've got this hotel in town where they made this really fancy sign. It was called, uh, oh, let's just say it was called, you know, weeks in or something like that a really fancy sign i'm like I said to my wife i'm like what the hell does that say it's purple and black i can't even make it out you know what does that say about a week later i drive by and this thing is in dark black letters on white and it says weeks in and it's just like the gaudiest simple sign and i'm picturing like this fight at the hotel between management and one of them says what the hell did you do with that sign i can't even read it and the guy said i'll show you a sign you know so he comes out <laughs> with this just you know gaudy sign. but i know everybody's professional but in my mind i'm always thinking what if i piss someone off yeah they're going to be professional still but what if it gets worse instead of better you know that kind of thing so that's why the communication things are huge for me with that said though i imagine you're also helping with insurance problems and insurance fights and prior authorizations for stuff and getting in that mess too or not? You know, I did a lot of that as a pharmacist and I have no problem um, fighting with insurance. If the client is coming to me with a sole need of insurance fighting, I typically will find somebody else who that's their thing. Um, I, Good for I you. just don't, I, yeah, I mean, this is the thing when you own a business, you know, like that's not, um, that's not where I look to primarily help. And I don't think my, my knowledge and skill set is, is fit to that perfectly. Now, I have fought with many an insurance company. I have no problem doing that. That's not my thing. So if that pops up in the middle of a, of a medical crisis, I will help, but that will not be my primary focus. Can you like piece that out to somebody if that popped up as a huge thing during this association with somebody? Yeah. So there are plenty of, you know, I was mentioning that directory in the beginning. There are plenty of other patient advocates who like to focus on billing and insurance and more power to them because that's not something I love. But if that comes up, Claudia, in your association with someone, can you still be like the gatekeeper? Do you have anybody that can help you? while you're helping a family. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, yeah. do you ever get some of those people kind of like underneath you or you like sub it out to them and then bring it back in? Yeah, I would sub that out. Now, you know, 
there is a, a business model in which um, a person could, it's kind of like a general contractor, right? Like every, you pay me and I pay them. And um, I just, I haven't chosen to do it that way as a general contractor approach. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think people do that and it works just fantastic. I would rather that person have a direct relationship with the, that's just the way I approach it. Doesn't mean it's right or wrong. Um, but there are people who do the other model, which is, you know, I'm the, I'm the overarching, um, you know, general contractor and I will connect you to that person, but ultimately you still pay me, I will pay that person. You also have it where you could still remain the patient advocate and they could actually hire out almost like another billing person to help. So they could almost have like two of you or three of you, right? Yeah, they certainly could. Um, I haven't really come into a situation where that's been necessary because if they come to me right out of the gate with, I have this billing issue, I already know that I'm not the person. Normally they're coming to me and it's like, okay, you know, I always do an initial consultation, kind of a discovery call that's free. So I'll know right out of the gate, like I... I'm, you know, a great choice, but I also, I'll let you know that there's a lot of people that you could choose from. I, here's what I, here's how I would approach this scenario. Perfect. If down the road, some insurance glitch comes up and I can manage it. Awesome. I will still do that. But if it's, if it's a huge, like, you know, now we're uncovering hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical debt, you know, then that's not going to be me. Most of the times you're coming in as a medical issue and the odds of a huge insurance thing popping up out of the blue. Pretty low after already this are probably low. Yeah. You probably know a lot of that already. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, it you know, I usually know right out of the gate if if it's somebody that I should connect with another advocate who is more focused on billing issues, um, which is why that discovery call is so important. Because sometimes, sometimes you know, they're calling me and it's like, I, I just need transportation to my doctor's office, you know, and I'm like, I can absolutely find you that. That's not me, but I can, I can find you that. So, yeah. What about that chunk that time period then when things are starting to wrap up, let's say, unfortunately, someone has died, do they ramp up? Do they ramp down because of hospice and stuff? And when do you finally end your, um, I imagine you never end the association, but when do you start to, the curve starts to flatten out for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to knock on lots of pieces of wood that none of my clients have died. Um, But that doesn't mean that, you know, I've necessarily um, been the sole person saving their life. It just means that maybe I've guided them to the care that they needed. But I have had, there's plenty of time. The goal, honestly, the goal is for them to be able to reclaim their own voice and start to manage this at oh, some point. So that's my I goal. Gotcha. I mean, I kind of look at it as a coach, right? I mean, if I'm going to get a business coach, I I shouldn't 10 years from now still be talking to that same business coach. Like at some point, I should have been able to to take the reins, right? And so the goal is, okay, at the beginning... We're gonna. I'm gonna hold your hand as much as as much as you need and as much as you want me to. And then I'm gonna slowly start to sort of retrain your mindset of okay, I can ask what. Oh, I can ask questions and oh, I I could look for another doctor. And so we're just like chipping away at some of these things that we I have gotcha. learned that we need to unlearn. And then eventually we're to the point where maybe we are in a better state of health and we're just kind of smooth sailing. Um, to the point where they think they can manage, they feel good managing it, but they know they can also call me at any time. So if some, if they're a huge bump along the road, they know they can still call me, um, and you know, and I can kind of walk them through it, either walk them through how to handle it, or I can get back into the handholding mode if necessary. But the goal is not to have me, you know, I should not be micromanaging this forever. Um, gotcha. Not because I wouldn't be happy to do that. I would love to help people. But I but I think help, the best way I can help people is to help them to start to know how to advocate for themselves. Do people ever come to you with different goals? Like one person might say, my goal is to get the best care and things like that. Do you ever have a thing where 
I don't know. I can't even think of an example. Someone said, I've been a real jerk to this medical team and I want to let them know that this was just stress and I understand what they're doing now and I want to repair this. I, I can't even think of the question. Is there ever a goal besides the goal of that? At first, I was going to ask, because you don't take them till they're ending their death, you know, I thought some people might say, look, I want the goal to be no more friction and I want to just want to die in peace. You've already explained your goal is not to do that, is to lift them up. Are there ever any different goals than that? I haven't had anybody come to me with that with that sort of palliative care goal, but that's um, that may be because what they're looking for at that point is more of a death doula, which is a fantastic, amazing service. Um, they may not come to a patient advocate for that reason. They may come to somebody who is more in tune to... Um, the needs and services surrounding sort of the dying process. But in, so what I typically do is in my in, intake and onboarding process is I ask people to tell me their three goals. And I think what, what often happens as, as happens with us, I think in a lot of facets of life is, oh, well, nobody's asked me that before, you know? So I think they take a little bit of time to really think through, oh, well, what do I really want? What do I really want, you know, out of this, out of this venture with and relationship with Claudia and, um, they actually do end up getting relatively specific. You know, maybe it's um, I want to, you know, make sure that I have a, a good medical team here, but that I'm also seeking out as many options as I possibly can that are maybe outside of my area that I didn't know about. You know, maybe it's this very rare condition and I feel okay with what I got now, but I feel like there may be something out there that I don't know about. And so they start to get more specific. And that's really helpful to me because I might come in and I might have some goals based on what I think could, you know, be helpful. But if that's not their goal, that's not serving them. That's not serving them. The medical system is kind of built around the medical system knowing what goals should be. You know, that's what it's built around. And that's part of the reason why it doesn't serve as well as it could. Because, you know, um, oftentimes we do things out of, um, you know, a CYA, you know, a litigate, you know, we're, we're, and that's unfortunate. It's the reality, though. There's, there's, you know, all kinds of reasons why litigation is so high in, in the medical profession. So a lot of the decision making that we make can be out of, um, okay, well, um, you know, here's what I would want to do from a humanitarian standpoint. But okay, but then if I do that, then would I get sued later, because I didn't do this, which is standard of care. And then how would that hold up in court? And so you know, all of these things where like, I just want to know what your what is what is your goal? You know, what is what do you want out of this? And, um, and once they're given the space, like some Somebody actually asked me that. You know, I think back to when my dad was sick and the only person who ever actually asked him, how are you dealing with this, was a was a registered dietitian that I got to talk to him at one point who wasn't even really part of his medical team. It was just like an ancillary appointment that I made for him. And I'm like, you know what? Nobody's actually asked him, how are you doing? You know, they'll ask, you know, how are you doing with the side effects or how, you know, but how are you doing as a person that's going through chemo? You know, so um, that's kind of how I feel is giving them the space to say, what do you really want? You know, and you're allowed to have a say in that. I'm in Grand Rapids, but rural from here, let's say 20 miles, I have some friends who are physicians and they say, some of those people 20 miles from here, they live not in the city for a reason. Some of them want a different life of not being as whatever, uh, for better, for worse, not being as open with their healthcare privacy and not wanting this and not wanting that. Yes. There can be totally different angles of someone saying, look, Claudia, here's this crisis and I'm trying to get to Mayo, you know, to do all this kind of stuff or whatever, whatever, you know, clinics and so on that you mentioned. And someone else says, no, I want the best that can be done in this little hospital, you know, or something like that. Yeah. You know, they have different goals of that. Yeah. 
That was interesting when you mentioned- mm -hmm. Academic institutions, yeah, academic hospitals. And at the top of their career, doctors want to be there. Why, why is that? Medical school and, and residency is- insanely rigorous. I don't think that that's in question, but you you kind of like can't appreciate that unless you've actually seen somebody go through it. It's it's very rigorous. And so um when you get when you're done, you don't necessarily well, let's just take anesthesia for example because that's that's in my world. Um you could go to a very rural place where you were doing anesthesia for colonoscopies all day. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's needed. But you aren't going to come from your rigorous training and as you exit your, you know, as you exit your training and you're kind of like, you know, getting to the peak of your career, you aren't going for bread and butter cases that um, are super slow and and don't challenge you. You need to be challenged because you, if you start going to that route, that's your route. Like you can't go back. You can't go back to rigorous because your next employer is going to say, well, you've been doing bread and butter cases in a rural town. You're not going to go now do, you know, a heart transplant. So, so, you know, you've got this sort of this journey that um, a lot of providers, and of course, there's always going to be exceptions, but you've got this journey that a lot of providers, you know, physicians will take that it's like, okay, well, I just got out. I'm at the, you know, I, I know the most I'm ever going to know. I took my board, you know, I'm, I'm book, I'm as book smart as I can be. And I want to go out and, um, and be challenged in the cases that I do. And then you go through this, you know, this part of life that's sort of, you know, your peak of your career. And then maybe, you know, maybe, I don't know, a couple decades down the road, you're like, I think I'm ready to start slowing down. And, um, you know, maybe I want to move out to the rural areas. And it's not that those doctors are, are bad. They're not bad. They're still great doctors, but they're, you know, they're, they're on the tail end of their career, they're slowing down, they're retiring. Um, you've got this crisis. You want to be with somebody who is like, I like, I'm just packed with knowledge and experience. Let me approach this. That's, you know, that's how, how I would want. That's interesting. And when you say academia, is that always because they're studying and they're on the newest edge? Would it ever be another hospital that's not associated with academia, but is still very progressive like that? Or is it usually always associated with school slash training slash academia institutes? Yeah. So they aren't always necessarily like public institutions like the University of Florida is, but um, most of the time you're dealing with an institution that has some role in training the next generation. If As long as that oh, that gotcha. institution has some kind of a uh, you know, residency rotation or, you know, they don't necessarily have to have a medical school, but as, if they're taking any role in training the next generation, they have to be at the top of their game because they have to teach all of the new things, all of the, you know, they're, they're constantly having to be at the top of their game. And if they don't have to be at the top of their game, then they don't. And that's okay too. That's a, a, a decision that you make as a, as a professional of like, okay, well, you know, I'm kind of getting tired of that. Let me start to slow down by going here, but who do you want you know, that's the question you have to ask yourself is if I've got this diagnosis that's scaring me, I would love, I mean, I personally would rather have somebody who is at the top of their game, who is teaching the next generation, who is required to stay on top of this and, and who has a robust research, right? Like they're, they're, those institutions are doing the research. They are the ones coming out with the journal articles that the other doctors are reading. I would want to know who those people are and I, you know, who's doing the research on my condition, you know, who's at the top of, of that world and where can I go? And that's typically going to be an academic institution. And if it's not, it's a private institution that's got some kind of a role in training the next generation. Did I use the wrong name when I said hospice? Is there a better name for that? 
hospice is the service that is provided to people who have a terminal diagnosis and typically are, you know, X amount of months to the end of their life, you know, four to six months. Um, and now there's also palliative care, which can go on for many years. Um, so that that is still not fully understood. A lot of people pair those two together and they're not the same. Palliative care is assisting that person who maybe has kind of a, you know, a pretty serious diagnosis, but is not nearing the end of their life and may be able to utilize the palliative care service for many years. Um, hospice is, is basically, you know, you're, when, you t- when you're told you're going to hospice, you're, you're, you're given a, a very terminal short-term prognosis. Now- What's that one that you mentioned though, Claudia? Death doula. So yeah, so, um, you know, we kind of know of doula it's D-O-U-L-A. We know of doulas in the space of like midwifery and that kind of thing. Um, but there is a, a great service that is taking on more heightened awareness too called death doula, which is so fantastic because just as just as a, a, you know, a birth doula or, you know, a midwife would walk you through the birthing process, a death doula is walking you through the death process. So if you know a loved one is in the process of dying, there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we don't know about a lot of things until we go through them. So, um, you know, what what is this process going to look like? You know, and who, you know, yes, I have hospice and I can call them and that's great, but there's so many other things that go along with death, you know? Like, what do I need to know about... Um, you know, the financial part, what do I need to know about the actual death itself? And who do I call? You know, who, how do I arrange for the service? And the, you know, do I do cremation? What are the pros and cons of that? And, you know, just so many, there's so many things. Kind of what you're doing, but just shifted, shifted after the crisis. And now you're looking at that side of it. Claudia, from a business standpoint, which is always hard to talk about when you're just got done talking about death, but being our business of pharmacy podcast from a business standpoint what struggles do you have in the business where you say because i know your your sister was able to help the web and we talked about maybe not having the support and having a one person wearing all the hats and so on but what are your biggest struggles now that you have to become a business person along with your skills the flow of clientele is always is always a struggle, I think, for a lot of business owners. But this it's no different in patient advocacy, and and I think even maybe heightened because you know if I were to start a if I were to start a lawn care business, you know, especially in Florida, like pretty much a hundred percent of this area is going to have some type of a lawn care service. So you know, if I if I differentiate myself a little bit, I'll, I'll I mean I'll probably have a decent client flow. I mean because you've got like a hundred percent of people need lawn care, right? In the patient advocacy space, this is a luxury service that is not that is not covered by insurance. So you know you've got you you're, you're starting to pare down, right? You're starting to filter. Okay, it's the people who know to look for a patient advocate, who know what a patient advocate is, and then it's the people who can afford a patient advocate services because it's going to be private pay. So you've got this like filter that starts to filter down a much smaller pool of people. And so keeping that flow is, um, you know, it's a struggle for all of us in this space. And, um, we are all very aware of that. A lot of a lot of it is awareness, um, just that we even exist and that and what the types of things are that we do and how we can help people. And then it's also the shift that I already mentioned, which is okay. I'll ca- I'll call her, but I'll call her when I'm in crisis mode. Um, you know, and then that's another filter, right? So that's great that I know that she's there. Okay, I have the financial means to to hire her. 
but I'm, I don't need her until I, I have no other options. Um, and so you filtered all the way down to a very small percentage of people and we can help much further, you know, earlier in the process. So it's just, you know, it's a lot of just this, you know, having conversations and people knowing that there are people who can help you and you don't have to be in crisis mode. And honestly, it's much better if you call us before you're in crisis mode. So it's, you know, that's, that's a big, that's a big challenge. Um, you know, and a lot of us, like I mentioned, the people that are going into this business, we aren't coming from an MBA type of a background. We aren't coming from, you know, corporate anything, um, maybe corporate pharmacy, but we're not, we don't come from a world of business. So we don't, we know what we know how to work in our business. We don't know how to work on our business. Nobody has taught us that. And um, we don't come into this with an excessive amount of money to be able to hire coaches. And even if we did hire coaches, we aren't we aren't able to hire the you know the patient advocate guru because there isn't one you know we we can hire somebody with general business knowledge which is fantastic um, but most of them don't know a whole lot about the healthcare space and so there's you know there's a lot of barriers there so yeah those are some of the challenges and are you always local in other words i imagine you have to have these face to face conversations well let's say without covid you have to have these face to face conversations is that right? Or am I missing anything that you were able to help somebody from, you know, calling you from Washington State while you're down in Florida? Yeah, I definitely help people outside of the area. Um, when I first started, it was kind of like, okay, this is well well pre-COVID. So, um, you know, I, I wanted to have feet on the ground. But I, I slowly began to realize that, you know, people would call me from out of the area. And sometimes, you know, all they really wanted was like an hour or two hour consultation with the family of here's the scenario. I don't know how to like approach this? How do I start to communicate effectively? And I can absolutely talk you through that. I also um, have an electronic medical record system that allows for telehealth. So I often will meet and honestly, through COVID, I even if they were local, I would meet them through telehealth. And so you know, we can talk through, they can upload their labs, they can upload their documents, I can see it in their chart. And so um, it's very much I mean, I and I can, if necessary, I and I have done this before, I can even be at the appointment on speakerphone. So you can literally bring me with your with your phone, put me on speakerphone, obviously letting the physician know there are different rules in different states for recording without their knowledge. So I always just default to let them know I'm here, you know, like, uh, we're not we're not doing anything that is like some secret thing. Um, You're not trying to spy on them or, or turn them into the boards or something like that. Right. And you know, and I also do recommend to patients who don't necessarily want to pay for me to be in the room. Um, to record it if their physician is okay with that. You know, like, don't do it without letting it, letting them know. But it, it's helpful to have a recording, not so you can put it on TikTok or whatever, but so that you can just have it later to say, oh my gosh, I missed like half of that conversation. You know, I don't even, I was so, like, he said the words X, Y, Z, and it was like, wah, 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 wah after that. But now I can re-listen to it, you know. Um, Note-taking is very helpful too, but uh, but a lot can be done remotely. Are the doctors open to recording usually or not? Um, I what, I what I tell my patients is um, if it is a hard no without a very clear reason why, like this, you know, my facility has a hard stop against it. You know, if it's just a hard no, like no, you can't record me because, you know, then I – that's – to me, that's a red flag. Um, because what are you saying that that what why why are you worried about what you're saying? You know, if I'm telling you like, I wouldn't you like me to be able to review what you said? Isn't a lot of the frustration on the physician side that I'm like, okay, now we're gonna let me say the same thing again next time because you didn't hear me the first time, you know, wouldn't it be really great if they could just hear it again? Um, so unless there's a really good reason, like the facility does not allow for that. Um, why is it a no? So I, you know, I say, you know, if it's a no, you have to respect that, but start to that's a red flag. 
just because it's a facility overarching rule, well, that's a red flag if the whole Correct. facility is like that. And it might even be a red flag if the doctor's saying it. It's like almost everything could be a red flag with that. Yes. Yeah. And I get that, you know, uh, you know, some facilities have just been sued more than others. And, um, and it's not always litigation is not always justified. Um, so there can be lots of times when there are multiple lawsuits. And it's just, you know, there was an angry patient who didn't get their way. And so I get that. And because of sometimes the heavy litigation decisions are made like that overarching decisions, I would say in the majority of cases, my patients have not run into that. Um, occasionally, they'll run into a, a hard stop no. And I'll just say, okay, we're going to take that as a red flag. Um, you know, if this doesn't feel right to me. So, you know, ultimately, I always tell them this is your decision. I never tell a patient to fire a, a doctor. I just, I suggest that, okay, let's look at this as a red flag. You're, you know, ultimately, it's your decision to move on or not. But I'm just letting you know that there should not be a concern for you to be able to take this home because it, you know, ultimately, this is instructions to you that. It, you know, even even if you even if you put this live on Facebook, you know, even even if you did w with it what they don't want you to do, what are they saying that they're worried about? You know, this is not a HIPAA breach when you have shared it. So, um, you know, what what is it that they're concerned about? You probably don't give the patient all that, right? Though you don't say if it's no, it means this. You you just say ask, and then they come yes. back and tell you, and then you get to think about it and so on. Yeah. Yeah, because each situation's different. You know, with, with anything else, it's like... It might just be, no, I'm not comfortable. I'm an old guy. I don't want it recorded. And how they say it also, you know, how they say it also. If it's coming from an immediate defense, it's like, all right, the defense approach is, is all right, that doesn't, you know, how did they say it? What was the scenario? What was the context? You know, and let's make a decision based on that. It almost makes you think I could offer that to some patients. Like if I'm talking to them in the pharmacy for yeah. like two minutes, I could say, hey, I could record, you know, if you want me, if you ever want me to record, this, let me know and I'll email it to you, something like that. Yeah. So, Claudia, in your wildest dreams, you know, starting this up, do you always like this one-on-one -on -one, or do you say, I want to be this where I've got all of these people doing this for me and you're up here? Do you ever have, not that you should by any means, because most people in your position might say, no, I want to be one-on-one -on -one with someone. And if I grow this, that's not going to happen. Where do you fall in that? Are you always like one-on-one? -on -one? writing this out? Or do you picture having 20 Claudia's working for you and you're doing this or that? Um, what I picture long term, which I'm also a very, I I'm working really hard on my spiritual journey to surrender the need to make any of this happen. Because this, I, I didn't come into pharmacy school to do this. So the fact that this is how it's, I I'm very open to the way that I am, um, the way that life's flow takes me. But um, I do envision, and, you know, as soon as I started this, I had pharmacists coming to me, okay, so when are you hiring? And I'm like, I am not to that point yet. Um, so there's definitely not a shortage of pharmacists who would like a shift. But um, I would I would love to have a an organization that has pharmacists, and I would love to make it pharmacists only, um, just because I, I, I love the profession. And I know that so many of us have a love for for doing passionate work. Um, and so I would love to have pharmacists under me who take their own clients. At no point do I want to get to the point where it's a phone tree. And today you have me and tomorrow you have, you know, Mary and the next day you have Alicia and um, you will still have your individual advocate. But if and when I get to the point where I cannot take on the patient load, I would love to say, okay, I have other advocates, but that you you are paneled to that person. That is your person. Um, and because I don't, I, at no point do I want this to look like the broken system. The whole point of it is to have that approach that that okay, I'm I'm sick of that. I want something different, and I don't I don't want you to have to um, you know have a scenario that that you feel like you're in the same position. So so that's what I envision. Um, 
I also envision being fully happy doing it individually. Um, I, I would like to, to speak to larger groups to start to get the word out of how to start to advocate for yourself. You know, even if you don't hire somebody, I think that there's a lot of messaging here that can get to people that um, even if they don't hire a patient advocate. So I would love for there to be a shift. And, you know, I have I have big lofty dreams, but I also ha- I also am OK uh, being just me. Bam, this goes. And let's say you have X hours a week to work on this or you want to work on this. Let's say it's 20 or 40 or 80, whatever it is. What percent would you like to still be? I'm Claudia. I'm working one on one with these people because I like talking to the doctors and doing this and doing this versus I'm Claudia and I'm working on the marketing and doing this for this people that are working in your operation, what percent would you do both of those? Would you say, I want it 50-50 or no, I've always dreamed of doing this big administration thing. I want it 90-10. What percent would you be individual versus working on a bigger company? I um, really don't have any desire to do a lot of that work. If I got to that point, I would love to farm that out to somebody who's who's better at doing that. Um, you know, that doesn't involve direct patient care. I, I mean, I'll, you know, I do a little marketing here and there, but that's not my forte. And it's not something that I'm, I would say that is my strength. And so um, I would love to get to the point of like farming some of that out. Um, I also would love to get to the point where I'm maybe 50% direct patient care and 50% making, making bigger waves on a bigger scale, you know, like actually being proactive active, like, okay, I would love to be a consultant, you know, to to a physician's office to like start to pinpoint, you know, making big because I see that I'm making great strides in these individual people's lives, which is fantastic. But I also know that there are potentials to make to make much bigger impacts on other parts of the system. We want to stay away from that administration. I stuff. definitely do. Yeah, we don't like that. <laughs> I don't. And I don't want to dislike my business. I mean, I get that there's always, you know, there's always stuff we do that we like, I don't just I don't enjoy doing taxes, you know, but I know I have to do them. I don't enjoy doing the bookkeeping, but I know I have to do them. But I would also love to send that to somebody who loves to do that. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, you don't want to dislove that. You mentioned that it's a lot of nurses doing this. Do you ever see yourself talking business business wise again? Do you ever see yourself being a consultant to other patient advocates that don't have the pharmacy know how? You know, you could teach all these. Let's say it's ninety percent nurses doing this or something, or non pharmacists. Let's say you can teach that ninety percent the right questions and the right things to look for as a pharmacist doing that. Yeah, we, you know, we're all already kind of coming together in this space and identifying, you know, individual strengths and we almost like a, you know, almost like a co-op homeschool situation, you know? Um, so yeah, and it's, and it's really great because, um, you know, I'm in a, in a smaller group where it's like, Hey, I have this situation. I haven't come across this. Um, you know, and there's always, you know, there's always those things. It's like random things come up that, that patients need that we're like, Oh, that's something new for me, you know? And so, yeah, I think it's fantastic that we, I think it's actually a really great thing that we all come from different backgrounds and have different strengths because then we can really, um, help these patients in ways that we could not could not do with only our skill set. So yeah. Yeah, because someone could bounce something off of you and it might take you five minutes to answer and it might take them 50 hours to research it all and come up with the same five minute answer you have. Yeah, absolutely. So Claudia, where do people listen to your podcast? So my podcast is called Minding Wellness, um, you know, and, and a good branded person would have everything be the same name. And that's where that's why this ah, is not a skill of mine. That's so, boring. It's <laughs> yeah. boring. 
<laughs> so um, Minding Wellness is my podcast name. It's where all podcasts are found. It's also on my um, website, but it's called Minding Wellness. The whole point of it is to how do we start being mindful of our wellness, like to bring it to the forefront and, st- and le- instead of making it like, oh, I'll think about it when, when you know, stuff hits the fan. So the whole point of it is to start being proactive. So I've had guests talk about all kinds of things that I wasn't even aware of, like hypnotherapy that I would have normally said was quackery because of my conditioning and indoctrination into the medical system. Um, And so, um, you know, we've talked about the, I recently had somebody come on talking about the fashion industry and the, how the textile industry is contributing to a lot of the toxicity in our environment and on the clothes that we wear and stuff, you know, like we don't even think, and these are things that I, I mean, I didn't think twice about the clothes that I wear. I try to pick stuff that, that feels good against my skin, but I haven't, I'm not diving any deeper than that into that industry. And so, so it's, it's all about just, just knowing a little bit more. And the more we know the better choices that we can make for ourselves. It's not about becoming neurotic. I have no intention for anybody to listen and have now neuroses over all these topics, but it's like, oh, okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know that hypnotherapy was an option. I didn't know about halo therapy. I didn't know. And um, maybe it's something I want to pursue. So, yeah. That's like my show, Claudia. We can talk about anything as long as we don't talk about medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We have enough talk about that. You know, we want to learn some things. So that's cool. Yeah. Well, Claudia, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. And best wishes on things. And what a nice testament to your dad and the things that you're doing. So uh, keep it up. Way to go. Thank you. Honored to be here. I think. Thank you so much for the invite. All right, Claudia. We'll talk again. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.